0: I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, going to the store. Maybe you were going to buy something like Cheerios. But they were out of the thing that you were planning to buy, and so you ended up finding yourself going home with round wheat things or something like that instead, right? Now, sometimes you will be pleasantly surprised when the copy of the original thing is as good as the original, Because in reality, let's be honest, sometimes the copy is made by the same people. They just put a different label on it. But in many other cases, you may find that the copy, despite the best efforts of those who are making it, is not as good as the original thing. And I think that's the reality that we see in this passage, that the entire system of the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the covenant, the temple, and the priesthood, is a copy of a... Reality in God's presence, but because of sin, and because of weakness, and because of all of these imperfections, the copy was never a perfect representation of the heavenly reality. What is different for us, what is different in the ministry of Jesus, is that his ministry is the true and exact representation of the realities that God wishes us to see and know. And so, as we looked at last week, we want to inherit the promises through hope, because Jesus is the perfect and eternal high priest. And today, a second reason, because Jesus is that priest of a better ministry. Why is his ministry better? Because he ministers in the true tabernacle, and he ministers through a new and better covenant. First of all, Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle or temple. Now, what was the tabernacle? We talked about this in the book of Exodus. In fact, God spent a whole lot of chapters in the book of Exodus describing for Moses what the tabernacle was supposed to look like. Here are the outer curtains. Here is the outer part. Here is the inner part. Here is where the altar goes. Here is where the candlestick goes. Here is where the incense goes. Here is where the Ark of the Covenant goes. And all of these different things that were a part of the tabernacle. And God was very specific. He says, here's the pattern, here's the plan, make it exactly the way that I show you. And so there was five or six chapters in the middle part of Exodus that described how it was supposed to be built. And then there was all those chapters at the end of Exodus that says, and they made it according to the instruction and the pattern that God gave them. But that tabernacle, for all its beauty, for all its Usefulness in representing for the people God's dwelling in and among them, that tent of meeting, was flawed. It was imperfect. It was, in many respects, a barrier for the people being able to approach their God. But in Jesus, we see that he ministers not in an earthly tabernacle, but in one made by God. First of all, we see this in chapter 8 and verse 2. It says, He is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man. It's a strange phrase to pitch a tent, right? But it is what we describe it as, right? So it's setting up the tent. What does that have to do with the tabernacle? It was a portable sanctuary for God. They would set it up in this place, then God would direct them to go over here. They would take it down. They would set it up now in this place over here. What's different between that tabernacle and the place where Jesus ministers? That one was made by human hands. Jesus ministers in God's presence, a place not made by human hands. We see that as well in chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say not of this creation. We see parallels to this, for example, in Isaiah 66, verse 12, and then also in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Let me read for you a couple of verses from there. Acts 7, 48 to 49 says this, "'The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, "'Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. "'What kind of house will you build for me?' says the Lord." Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? So this describes for us the reality that the tabernacle, the tent, the sign of God's presence in the Old Testament could never adequately contain the fullness of God's glory. It was an imperfect picture for imperfect people. But Jesus now ministers before God in the true reality of God's presence. So it was not made by man but by God. Secondly, it was not an imperfect copy, but the true reality. It was like the heavenly reality. Verse 5 here of chapter 8 says, the priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Or chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, describes it in a little bit more detail for us. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, and the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense. And the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so, we see that Jesus did not serve in that tabernacle, the one that is described in Exodus, the one in which Aaron and his sons and the descendants, the priests of Levi, after them ministered in. For all its glory, for all its beauty, it was still a copy of the reality that it was pointing to. Now, when we think about the reality, I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Was the author of Hebrews saying... There was a building, temporary though it was, in the Old Testament. Now Jesus ministers in some sort of building in heaven. I think we would have to say no, and this is the reason that I would say that. As we go through a number of passages in the New Testament, for example, Acts 17.24, Paul says, just as it said in Stephen said in the book of Acts, Paul says later, God doesn't need a temple, and you can't build one to hold Him. God doesn't need this place to be the place for His home. He made everything. So if God made everything, why do you think you can build something better for Him than the whole thing that He had made? Perhaps a parallel would be this. If you have ever built something and you had small kids, they saw you doing it, and they wanted to do it alongside you, right? But if you built this thing that was better and then they came alongside and they're like, here's the one that I made, you would be kind to them. You would rejoice that they showed love to you in that way, all of those sorts of things. But it's not like you need the thing that they made to be a replacement for the better thing you've already built, right? In the same way, God doesn't need us to build him a house. He made the world. He made the universe. That's the point that we see there. And the further reason that I would say that this is not a building is is, uh, three verses here at the end of the book of Revelation, which we talked about several times when we were going through the book of Exodus, but specifically here at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, starting in um, verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Now, there is a city that we see described in Revelation 21, a holy city, a new Jerusalem. But when the tabernacle of God is among men, he's saying the dwelling of God is among men. And then a little bit later in Revelation 21, verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then in chapter 22 and verse 3, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. So there's parallels, and there are things that are different between the tabernacle and the true reality that's described for us, for example, in Revelation 21 and 22. What are the similarities? God with His people, His people serve Him. What are the differences? A building that people made that was an imperfect copy... God in His fullness and glory dwelling among His people without a tent, a veil, a curtain separating Him from His people. What made the difference? Christ's death at which point this veil in the temple and the tabernacle is torn in two. Why did there have to be a veil? Why did there have to be curtains around to separate the holy place from the sight of the people, because of sin. When sin has been dealt with, there is no longer any need for this veil, for this covering, for this curtain. And so, Jesus serves not in an imperfect copy, but the true reality. It is like the heavenly reality, and it prepares the way for the heavenly reality. Why do I say this? Chapter 9, verses 8 through 10 says this, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. As long as that veil was there, as long as that building was there, they didn't have direct access to God. Verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed, how long? Until a time of reformation, a time of change. So Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle, not made by man, but by God, not an imperfect copy, but the true reality. But Jesus also ministers a new covenant. So the first is where he ministers, and the second is what he ministers under, what framework, what system? And the framework or the system is a new covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant in the Old Testament, particularly, is where we see them, primarily, is this. It is a promise made by God to a specific set of people, often with specific expectations connected with it, right? So, some people have said, well, there is a Noahic covenant, because Noah gets off the ark and God says uh, various things about them having uh, rule over creation and repopulating the earth and all those sorts of things. Is that a covenant per se? I think it's more of a description of what God wants to take place. I think we do see a very specific covenant in Genesis chapter 12, 15, 18, 22. It's gradually unfolded in God's relationship with Abraham. Things like, leave this place and go here, and here are the things I will do for you. I'll give you a family, I will give you land, I will bless the nations of the earth through you. And as that covenant unfolds in the book of Genesis, it becomes more specific through whom these things will be accomplished. At the beginning, it's just, you're going to have descendants, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we see it's not just through any of your descendants, but through Isaac, not just through any of Isaac's children, but through Jacob, not just through any of Jacob's children, but through Judah. We have, see all of that by the end of the book of Genesis. So God unfolds this series of promises. Then we come to the next really big covenant in the Old Testament, and that is the one that God makes with the people that we saw in the book of Exodus At the mountain, God makes a covenant with the people, and it goes something like this. You will be my people, and you will serve me. Here's all the things that I expect for you to do. I will be your God. What's true about that covenant? Israelites never really followed it. They would follow it for a little while. They'd have a good king and and they'd repent and they'd do most of the things God wanted them to do and then a bad king would come along and people would turn away from God and they wouldn't follow him anymore. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, God says, I'm going to bring about a new covenant. Not the one I made with Abraham, not the one I made with Moses, but a new covenant with the people of Israel. One last issue that we need to talk through briefly before we see what this covenant is like. Is this new covenant for us in the church automatically without any qualifications? Or is the new covenant for Israel like the law of Moses was for Israel? I would argue the second that it was for Israel because verse 10 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Well, then, why are we studying this if this has nothing to do with us? The way that this has something to do with us is Jesus was what the old covenant of Moses was pointing to. Jesus is the one who fulfills and administers the new covenant for the Israelites with whom he is making this new set of promises. We get to participate with the Israelites in the benefits of the New Covenant because of the sort of things that Paul talks about in Romans, which are things like the Israelites rejected God, and so take a tree, like an apple tree. These branches on the apple tree were not producing apples. What does the person who's looking at the orchard do? He cuts off the branches that aren't producing anything, the ones that are diseased or, or sickly or just aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And then theoretically, he could come along and graft in new branches. That's what happened with us. We participate in the new covenant because the Israelites rejected Jesus who was coming to bring them this covenant. And we have opportunity for, to participate in the blessings of with Jesus because of their rejection. But as Paul says in Romans, that doesn't mean God's forgotten about the Israelites forever. That doesn't mean that we get to say, well, forget about you, we're going to take all the promises God made to you and give them to us, because that's not how it works. You make promise with a person here, you can't just be like, well, now it applies to this person over here. Right? If I say, Bob, I'm going to give you $10, and then later on I'm like, nope, I'm going to give it to Paul instead. Paul's like, that's great. And Bob's like, you lied, right? If we look at God as doing the same thing, God's not a faithful God. So what we should say is not that God takes the promises given to Israel, takes them away from Israel and gives uh, gives them to us, but that God made the promises to Israel which they failed to keep. God makes a new covenant with his people Israel Because Israel continued to reject Jesus, as we were even looking at in the book of Matthew earlier this morning, God brings the Gentiles in to participate with the blessings and the benefits of salvation. Not the new covenant per se, because that was for the Israelites. It was a replacement of God's promises He had made long ago to them through Moses. But, a an opportunity for us to participate in these blessings of salvation nonetheless. What does this covenant look like? Because I think there are very direct parallels between what God says to the Israelites and what salvation looks like for us. First of all, not obey the law, but the law of Christ within our hearts. Look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 8. With the, I will make this new covenant, verse 8. Why? Because he found fault with them. Now, was the problem with the law? No. The problem was the fact that people didn't keep the law. So that's why verse 8 says, finding fault with them. So what was not true of the covenant? It was not like the one that they kept breaking, verse 9. God says, do this, and they didn't do it. What's different is, verse 10, the law will not be something that they see to be outside of themselves. The law will not be something that they think, I can break it and everything will be fine. The law will be something that will be within them and that they will obey and God's, they will be aware of God's presence dwelling within them, helping them to keep that law. Does that sound similar to what we see in the letters of the New Testament about our relationship to what God is doing in us? Yes. Just like God said to the Israelites, you couldn't keep the law of Moses, but I will write my law upon your hearts. God says to us, you guys didn't even know the law of Moses for the most part. You had conscience and you rejected it. You had creation and you rejected it. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, through the work of Jesus Christ, make it possible for you to truly and finally obey me. Not through a law that's external to you, but because you know it, it's in your heart. Secondly, not only is it not obey the law, but the law of Christ within our hearts, but it's not know the Lord, but God with men. Look at verse 11 here of chapter 8 they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them you ever had the experience that you go to introduce two people and they already know each other Has that ever happened to anybody okay. the Israelites job was to introduce one another to God you don't know God here's what he's like you don't know God Come, know Him. Have a relationship with Him. When is that sort of approach no longer necessary? If everyone already knows God. How will they know God? When God dwells in and among them. And so, in the old system, obey the law. Now the law is within the heart. Know the Lord. Now they know the Lord. They have an actual relationship with Him, not through priests and Levites and all of this one tribe over here, but directly through the ministry of Jesus Christ. What's one of the significant things about Jesus' name? Emmanuel. We'll have Christmas here in a few months. That comes up around that time. What does it mean? God with us. So, and this is perhaps the most important part Jesus would not be able to minister to the new covenant if there was no sacrifice. Because verse 12 of chapter 8 says, I'll be merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. But God can't just um, ignore sin. God can't just be like, no, don't worry about it, no big deal. We can do that to a certain extent with one another because we recognize we all do wrong. And so we're more willing to cut each other some slack. But God can't just like sweep things under the rug and act like they never happen. God has to deal with sin. How does He do this? Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 say, say this, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, the inner tabernacle, the most holy place, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So this sacrifice that God is going to provide is not an ongoing thing like it was in the Old Testament. The priests in the Old Testament offered many sacrifices every day, making intercession, Providing atonement for the people in God's sight constantly. That's what chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 talk about. For the, all of the people collectively, the high priest would go into the holy place once a year and make an offering before God so that the people would be clean and cleansed in God's sight. Well, why is Jesus' ministry better? These priests did it over and over And over and over and over again, Jesus did it once. Chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Next week, we're going to see this develop further from the end of chapter 9 into about the middle part of chapter 10, what this one sacrifice of Christ looks like, how it provides forgiveness, all of those sorts of things. But the thing I want us to see here is the contrast between the ministry of priests in the Old Testament and the ministry of Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what is that contrast? They serve God by making sacrifices over and over again. Jesus serves God through the one sacrifice He made that never needs to be repeated. What's significant about this sacrifice? It is one sacrifice that provides forgiveness. Chapter 8 and verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more, which God could only do if a sacrifice dealt with those sins. Jesus' death is that sacrifice. Secondly, one sacrifice that completes the work. Through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all. And then, and this is where I want us to wrap up today. One sacrifice that is able to cleanse conscience, not just the body. Chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Animal sacrifices ceremonially cleansed the flesh. Leviticus 4.20 talks about this. But only Jesus as the perfect and final and one-time sacrifice could cleanse our souls, our consciences. So last week we were encouraged to inherit the promises through hope, because Jesus is the eternal and perfect high priest. Next week, we'll see that we need to do that because Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins. But today, we see this because Jesus, as the high priest, administers a better covenant in the true temple. But we might have this idea that Jesus is serving and carrying out this ministry by himself. And that's not the picture that this passage gives to us. Why do I say that? Because at verse 14 it says, the point of all this is that you would serve the living God. So here's the picture. Priests in the Old Testament served God under the high priest in the tabernacle and later the temple. God's people individually as priests in the New Testament serve God under Jesus as the high priest who ministers in heaven forever. So the point of all this, and this is where so much of modern Christianity has gone wrong, we thought the point of all this is so that we have a free ride to heaven and everything's good from here on out. Whether that be, I can go do everything that all the people who don't believe in God do, because I'm sure I'm going to heaven because I got my ticket, or God is going to give me all these amazing things in this life, because God wants me to be happy and healthy and rich and all these sorts of things, or any number of other false ideas. But that's not what the point of this is. Jesus doesn't save you so that you can say, I'm good, I'm going to heaven. And when we have so emphasized the place instead of the person, we've misunderstood why God saves us. Why does God save you from your sin? So that you will serve him. Where do we see this idea of a good conscience in the Bible? Why do we need a good conscience? Because the obstacle to us serving God is that we don't have a clean conscience before Him. We sort of look at salvation as though it's just the actions that we do externally that need to be dealt with. Sometimes that's how we think of it, right? But the really big problem of why you can't serve God in this new system of worship that the book of Hebrews describes is because your conscience, apart from the work of Jesus, is not cleansed of the sin that defiles it. We saw in Matthew 14, last Sunday, in Sunday school, that Jesus said, it's not eating bread without doing the ceremonial washing that makes you unclean. What makes you unclean is that you have in your heart lust and greed and murder and disobedience and all of these other sorts of things, and it spills out. You can wash your hands like the priest did on the outside of the temple. You can make a sacrifice which ceremonially cleansed the flesh. But those things cannot deal with the inmost part of who you are. But Jesus' sacrifice actually and truly cleanses our conscience. So where else do we see this in Scripture? We're going to see it later in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, verse 18, where it says, "'Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience.'" desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Paul describes his ministry several times in the end of the book of Acts. Acts 23.1 and 24.16 and then 2 Corinthians 1.12. And 1 Thessalonians 2.10, and 1 Timothy 1.5 and 19, and 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul says over and over again, I serve my God with a good conscience, with a clean conscience, with a good conscience, with a clean conscience. They're like, "All right, great, we're happy for you, Paul, why is that a big deal? Paul murdered people. Supposedly in the service of God, so how can he say later in his ministry, I serve God with a clear conscience? How could he deal with that great sin on his conscience, knowing that he was guilty of it? Because Jesus' sacrifice cleansed his conscience through faith in the work of Jesus and enabled Paul to serve God wholeheartedly. Not that he was perfect from the point of his conversion and turning to Christ, but that he could serve God with a clean and a clear conscience. And Hebrews 9.14 is saying this, God can and will do the same thing for every person who believes in Jesus. So, I mean, what does this look like? Just put it in practical terms. Let's say you stole $500 from your boss at work. You come in the next day. How likely is it that you're going to be able to do your job diligently and without distraction, and everything's okay between you and your boss when there's this problem that has not been taken care of. You don't have a clean conscience. Every time you turn around and see your boss over there, you're going to be like, do you know? Am I getting in trouble? What's going to happen next? The same is true for our relationship with God. If our lives are full of sin that has not been dealt with through the work of Jesus Christ, How can we ever expect to serve God faithfully and wholeheartedly? We can't. And that's why it's so critical and so important that Jesus' sacrifice, that Jesus' ministry cleanses our consciences, not just sort of deals with our external actions. So, what sins need to be cleansed from your conscience? Greed? Anger? Lust, disobedience to parents, complaining. I mean, we could name off dozens of sins. All of them come back to, as the song we sang a few moments ago, pride is the reason for my sin. Right? And that sin needs to be dealt with. And the only way that sin is dealt with is through the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. That's how you are saved, through the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's how you are cleansed, the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, we see a parallel to this in what it says in 1 John, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why does it matter that Jesus ministers as a high priest of a better ministry? Because apart from that ministry, you and I can never serve God with a clear conscience. Our sin can never truly be dealt with in the inmost part of our beings, and we will never fulfill the purpose for which God saves people, which is to serve Him with a clear conscience, despite all the sin we have committed in our lives before that point. Because Jesus has forgiven those sins, we can serve God with a clear conscience, just like Paul did. And then when we sin again, and we confess that sin, our consciences and our souls are cleansed time and again on the basis of what Jesus has done and we can continue to serve God. Now, there's a lot of passages that talk about, so should we start sinning more so that can happen more because that's an amazing work of God? Obviously not. But there is hope for cleansing from sin that is found in Jesus, and there is an opportunity to faithfully serve God that is found in Jesus. And really, that's the whole point of why God saves you, to serve Him with a clear conscience. You have a great high priest who fulfills a better ministry than any that came before him. So serve God through Jesus with a clear conscience, because that's why God has called you to be one of his own. Let's pray. Lord, we think that we can hide our sin. The person next to us, the person that we talk to every day, they might not know the sins of deep down within our hearts. Judas walked with all the disciples, and it seemed to some extent they were oblivious to the fact that he was ripping them off and stealing from the common bag of money and making plans to betray Jesus. Lord, may that not be us. If we truly are your people, then you will convict us of our sin, and we will deal with it on the basis of Jesus' work on our behalf. So, Lord, help us to deal with our sin, never to love it, never to act like it's no big deal. Never to excuse it. Compassion toward other sinners, yes. But excusing sin, absolutely not. Whether it's in our heart or in the of those around us expressed by what we do outwardly. Lord, may we strive and desire to serve you with a clear conscience. Not just go through the motions because, like the illustration I gave, we can... we can go to work and and do the things we know we're supposed to do. But if we know that there's some huge problem between us and the person that we're working for, how can we really do it wholeheartedly? We can't. We can't serve you wholeheartedly if our consciences are not clean. But in your sacrifice, in your ministry, there is the possibility, even the expectation, that we would serve you with a clear conscience. And so, Lord, this morning, if we need to confess our sins... Shine a light on the darkness that's in our hearts and help us to see what sin it is we need to turn away from and turn back to you. If we've never done that to begin with, may we turn away from our sin for the first time of many turnings away from sin to follow after you and find the freedom and cleanness of conscience there is to be found in Jesus. And Lord, if we have been viewing our salvation as just We've checked off the box a long time ago, we've got our ticket, we get on the ride and we sort of ride it until the end. Lord, help us not to have an amusement park theology of Christianity. You want us to serve you, not just sort of sit back and watch things happen. You want us to fervently work for you with the entirety of our being. Like the priests of old, their lives were devoted to your service. They were born into it. They died in that service. Their whole lives were involved in that service. And Lord, we're not bound by the requirements of birth and all of these other expectations that they were burdened by, but we have the great privilege to serve you. Help us to see that. Lord, I pray that you would bless this day, that these truths would continue to convict us and encourage us and challenge us throughout this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.